You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Making Money Mobile It is clear from these examples that creativity comes from a mixture of risk and opportunity. One of the megatrends I see, however, is that so many of the greatest risks, be they terrorism, financial instability or obesity, are shifting to the industrialized world, while many of the greatest opportunities, like economic growth, clean technology and social enterprise, are shifting to the developing world. Emerging markets are on the rise and developed countries are in danger of saturation or stagnation. There is a simple driver behind this shift. Risk is fed by satisfaction and complacency, while opportunity is driven by hunger and need. And of course in developing countries, the scale of social needs and the hunger for improving their lot in life are still massive. Necessity is the mother of invention and desire is the father of effort. One place where these dynamics are playing out is in the telecommunications sector. In a Vodafone-sponsored study of 92 countries over the period 1996 to 2003, it was concluded that a developing country with an average increase of 10% in mobile penetration showed 0.59% higher growth in GDP than an otherwise identical country. This study was replicated by Deloitte & Touche in 2007 using more recent data which found that a 10% increase in mobile penetration would produce an additional 1.2% increase in annual GDP growth rates. Today two-thirds of the world's mobile phone subscriptions are in developing nations with the highest growth rate in Africa. It took just six years, from 1994 to 2000, for mobile phones to overtake fixed lines on the continent, with an average 1,000% annual growth rate. And the rapid take-up continues. While just 1 in 50 Africans had a mobile in the year 2000, now 28% have a cellular subscription. There are many reasons for this phenomenal growth including shorter payback periods on investment, the relatively low skill levels needed to operate a mobile phone, as compared, say, with a computer, the low barriers to entry in terms of infrastructure, and business model innovations, such as prepaid systems or Grameen-style micro-entrepreneurship and mobiles used as public telephones or telecenters. Beyond simply expanding traditional mobile services to Africa, however, companies like Vodafone have also used the continent as an incubator for innovation. In Kenya in 2005, for example, 80% of the population did not have a bank account. Also, more money was coming into the country through remittances from families living abroad than through overseas development assistance. However, these transfers were expensive, with Western Union typically taking a big slice in commission. Hence, Vodafone developed and piloted a new service called M-Pesa, whereby customers could use their mobile phones to perform financial services, including depositing, withdrawing and transferring money using SMS texts. The project was jointly funded by the UK government's Financial Deepening Challenge Fund, and the pilot ran over six months in Kenya from October 2005 in partnership with a local microfinance institution.
Since rolling out through its national partner Safaricom, the service has been wildly successful. For many, the service has been life-changing, giving access to financial services from which they were excluded and allowing them to receive remittance payments from the UK directly. Besides employing and empowering thousands of M-Pesa agents, the scheme has also cut out a lot of corruption, as all transactions are electronic. When Vodafone extended the M-Pesa service to Tanzania in April 2008, they signed up more than 3 million customers in less than a year. In 2009, Safaricom also launched the continent's first commercial solar-powered mobile phone, the Coral 200. Building on their success in Kenya, Tanzania and Roshan in Afghanistan, they announced in February 2010 that they would bring M-Pesa to South Africa as well, which is Africa's biggest economy. Given its efforts, it is not surprising that Vodafone was placed first as a sustainable business in the tomorrow's value rating of the ICT and telecom sector. Building on the success of Vodafone and others, a 2010 study by Arthur D. Little estimates that global transaction volume in mobile financial services will reach approximately $208 billion by 2015. Self-sufficient electronics Another innovation coming out of Africa started with music, or to be more precise, radios. It was whilst watching a BBC documentary in April 1994 that Chris Staines first realised the potential of an innovative idea from the British inventor Trevor Bayliss. The clockwork radio, as the device was first known, was proposed as a means of halting the spread of AIDS in Africa through better education. Traditional radio, although widespread, relied on an electrical supply, or the availability of disposable batteries, both of which were in short supply across the continent. In sub-Saharan Africa, only 29% of the population has access to electricity. By contrast, the wind-up radio was powered by a spring-charge mechanism that only required human power. Staines and his business partner Rory Steer realised immediately the potential for self-sufficient electronics, and so the Free Play Energy Group was born. The growth of Free Play, like so much innovation, was only possible through the support of many partners, starting with a grant from the British government. Subsequent investors have included, among others, the co-founders of the Body Shop, Gordon and Anita Roddick. On one of their community trade trips to South America, Gordon Roddick came across a Brazilian native who had obtained one of the free play radios and was making a living selling people chances to listen to the radio in the jungle. With a core purpose to make energy available to everyone all of the time, the company innovated to expand the product range to include wind-up torches, lamps, portable power sticks and mobile device chargers. Most recently, they have also ventured into primary healthcare. John Hutchinson explains, Freeplay itself is the first company in the world intended to make electronic products for deep rural environments. He's the chief technology officer of Freeplay Energy in Cape Town, South Africa. He said a number of people came to us and said, why don't you think of medical products? Because hospitals in Africa are littered with derelict Western-derived equipment. They require disposable or replaceable elements, and they're just not right for the job. 
Africa, you know, is a very harsh user environment. Things break in Africa. The opportunity came when Hutchinson met a doctor, John Wyatt, a professor at University College of London Hospital. He works in a very uptech environment, explains Hutchinson, and he had a bit of a crisis when he thought, I spend so much money on saving one kid's life in this high-tech environment, whereas there are children dying elsewhere for lack of appropriate care. Wyatt was painfully aware that 95% of infant mortality happens in developing countries, but they have only 5% of the world's technology available to them. So Wyatt managed to get some seed money and worked with Hutchinson to look at three potential devices. A pulse oximeter, which measures oxygen saturation in the blood of children. A syringe driver, which assists in giving newborns intravenous nourishment safely. And a jaundice pigment measurer, to determine degrees of jaundice in infants. In the end, these turned out to be beyond the capacity of free play, but they came up with an alternative product that they felt they could support, an off-grid fetal heart rate monitor. The Washington Post reports that half a million women die annually in childbirth, often from causes that could be prevented with basic care. Getting an aid like this into the hands of midwives in the developing world could mean the difference between life and death, both for mothers and infants. Together with Philip Goodwin and Stefan Zwerlin, Hutchinson completed the design which won a Design to Improve Life Innovators Award. Reflecting on why he continues to innovate for free play, Hutchinson said, I've been with this company since the beginning in 1995, and it's still about providing the benefits of modern technology to people who otherwise would be completely excluded. Entrepreneurs on a Mission People like Chris Staines and Rory Steer are a special breed of individual. People who have become popularly known as social entrepreneurs and form part of the social enterprise movement. There are examples throughout history of companies that have worked for social benefits. Think, for example, of the credit unions started in the 1850s in Germany. But the movement really only got formally recognized in the 1980s. This was the decade in which Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in Washington, D.C. It was also when Muhammad Yunus registered the Grameen Bank as an independent bank. And the former Archbishop of Panama, and Swiss businessman Stefan Schmidheine set up Fundes in Panama, all with a mission to support social entrepreneurs. Since 1981, Ashoka has elected over 2,000 leading social entrepreneurs as fellows, providing them with living stipends, professional support, and access to a global network of peers in more than 60 countries. Ashoka defines social entrepreneurs as those who have innovative solutions to societal problems and the potential to change patterns across society. They demonstrate unrivaled commitment to bold new ideas and prove that compassion, creativity and collaboration are tremendous forces for change. Put more simply, the life purpose of the true social entrepreneur, says Bill Drayton, is to change the world. And many have done just that. Ashoka evaluates the impact of its fellows five years after their election and start-up. In 2010, the corporate executive board company reported the results of a survey of Ashoka's impact, 
which they conducted in 12 languages across the globe. They found that 52% of the Ashoka Fellows had changed national policy within five years, and 76% had changed the pattern in their field nationally, on average 3.2 times within the same five years. These results are especially striking, since five years is early in the life cycle of the social entrepreneur. The social enterprise movement was given a boost in the 1990s with the establishment of the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, which was started by the World Economic Forum's founder, Klaus Schwab. It supports pragmatic visionaries who achieve large-scale, systemic and sustainable social change through new invention, a different approach or a more rigorous application of known technologies and strategies. Jeff Skoll, the first president of eBay, also set up a fund, the Skoll Foundation, to support social entrepreneurs. I like to support causes where a lot of good comes from a little bit of good, says Skoll. In other words, where the positive social returns vastly exceed the amount of time and money invested. One of the projects supported by the Skoll Foundation was a series of studies by sustainability on social entrepreneurship. The first report, called Growing Opportunity, concluded that three different mindsets have characterized business thinking in relation to social and environmental issues. They say if 1.0 was about compliance and 2.0 about citizenship, 3.0 is about creative destruction and creative reconstruction. They identified five main components to this mindset 3.0. First, systems thinking and design, like cradle to cradle. Second, consumer engagement, like at village reach. Third, new business models, like Aravind Eye Hospitals in India. Fourth, 360-degree accountability, as promoted by Transparency International. And fifth, base of the pyramid markets, like Danone and Grameen Bank's partnership. One of the leading think tank organizations focused on the social enterprise space today is Volance Ventures, co-founded by John Elkington, which among its other activities produces a roll call of the Phoenix 50 pioneers in the business of social innovation, nominated by entrepreneurs and other stakeholders. Kickstarting Development What many of these institutions like Skoll and Volance realize is that the creative entrepreneurs often already exist, but lack of capital, management expertise, and access to markets is a problem. This is precisely the sort of gap that Martin Fisher and Nick Moon were trying to address when they founded Aprotech in 1991, which in 2005 changed its name to Kickstart. Their early efforts were focused on building and food processing technologies and applying them to Africa, where 80% of the poor are small-scale farmers who depend on unreliable rain to grow their crops and have at most two harvests per year. Kickstart understood that irrigation would allow people to move from subsistence farming to commercial agriculture. Therefore, they developed a line of manually operated moneymaker irrigation pumps that allow farmers to easily pull water from a river, pond or shallow well, as well as to pressurize it through a hose pipe, even up a hill, and irrigate up to two acres of land. The pumps are easy to transport, install and operate, and retail between $35 and $95.
It is a very efficient use of water and, unlike flood irrigation, does not lead to the build-up of salts on the soil. Kickstart continued to expand their range of irrigation and other products, including, for example, a stabilized soil block press, which makes building blocks from soil and cement, and the Mafuta Mali oil seed press for sunflower and sesame seeds in the East and Central African region. Using this experience, Fisher and Moon developed a five-step process to develop, launch and promote these simple money-making tools that social entrepreneurs could use to create their own profitable business. As a result, since 1991, 97,500 successful new businesses have been started all over Africa, with more than 800 being created each month. Since each of these enterprises supports a family, Kickstart conservatively estimate that these businesses have already lifted 488,000 people out of poverty. Each year, these businesses generate over $98.6 million in new profits and wages and have created 147,000 new wage jobs. In Kenya alone, users are generating new revenues equivalent to 0.6% of GDP. Today, people from around the world can make donations on the Kickstart website, and the reassuring possibility is that each dollar donated can turn into $15 in profits and wages. In a similar resource matching initiative, the Microfinance Information Exchange, MIX, acts as an intermediary that is catalyzing the efforts of the microfinance industry. MIX supplies detailed financial and social performance information about microfinance institutions to potential investors, as well as to the institutions themselves. This data not only helps individuals and organizations make wise decisions, it also strengthens the microfinance sector as a whole. In a similar way, the Local Initiative Support Corporation magnifies the efforts of community development organizations by connecting them to corporate, government and philanthropic resources. It helps local organizations secure funding, change policy and enlist technical and management assistance. As a result of its matchmaking, the organization has helped build 253,000 affordable homes, 38 million square feet of retail and community space and 132 schools. These so-called clicks-to-bricks schemes help to scale up entrepreneurial solutions. For example, in its first 10 years, an organization called Kaboom helped communities build nearly 750 playgrounds, but its reach was partly limited by the number of staff it could deploy to each site. When it shifted from hands-on management to a web-based platform that helps communities organize their projects, approximately 4,000 more playgrounds were constructed in just three years. Sun Ovens International, founded by Paul Munson, is a similar development-related entrepreneurial solution that is seeking to scale up around the world.